Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vents, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have Anatta and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. At the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, the job market was a pretty unstable place, especially for journalists. While many were able to keep their jobs but were working day and night reporting on the pandemic, many lost their jobs through budget cuts or restructures at their organisations as the industry struggled to balance the books in the face of plummeting advertising revenues and the general population's growing reluctance to stay tuned into a pretty depressing news cycle. Alice Porter currently works as the London reporter for GB News, but just before the pandemic began, she was a reporter on the BBC's Victoria Derbyshire programme, and she found herself out of work as BBC budget cuts forced the programme off air. As the pandemic took hold in the UK, she began job hunting and took roles at Good Morning Britain and then GB News, where she is today, but life was very difficult for those two years, both for her and her partner. In this episode, we discuss how and why Alice went into journalism, the story she worked on at Victoria Derbyshire and across her career, the anxiety that comes with being in the industry and how it seeped into her personal life, as well as social media comparison culture among journalists. We also discuss the importance of separating general mental health from mental illness. I'm a big advocate for that on the podcast and why conflating the two is actually harmful to the conversation. So this is how my conversation with Alice Porter went. Alice Porter, welcome to the Just Checking Pod. Thank you for talking to me on this Thursday morning. This is the earliest pod of record I've ever done, so thank you for that. It's very nice to talk to a BBC alumni or fellow BBC alumni, I should say. How are you getting on? Yeah, I'm going really well, thank you. Yeah, it's a beautiful day. Yeah, it's really lovely to meet you and and talk to you. Excellent. Given where we are with the conversation right now in journalism, Alice, I think the topics we're going to cover is going to be a good reminder for how much education we still have to give all the normies out there when it comes to journalists. So um, without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Oh, absolutely. Let's start the pod by talking about your journey into journalism, Alice. So why don't you tell the listeners how and why you became inspired to be one, where your love for writing or filmmaking or storytelling started and the journey to where you are today I think it always sounds a bit of a cliche when anyone says I sort of fell into it but (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately that is the case I actually was just completely desperate to be an actress and that's really what I wanted to do and I'd applied for drama school and then didn't get in basically and so that was quite harder than I sort of was just trying to find a route where I could put some of those skills that I really enjoyed in acting and some of that sort of the communication I guess with that and try and sort of find a career that kind of worked for that and I just had done some work experience at my local BBC radio station and I really enjoyed it and then it slightly just kind of came from there but I definitely left university I left with no job I'd just done a number of unpaid work experiences I came home and all my friends were in London seemingly doing fabulous jobs and I felt immensely left out and stuck in what felt like stuck in my parents house in old Worcestershire and yeah I I think it was quite it's quite it was quite difficult that transition from university but I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. 
you mentioned there about acting and I think I was an sometime actor when I was a kid and I certainly think that's helped me in some aspects of doing the podcasting and presenting today so do you think that acting experience has helped you in your on-air presenting and pieces to camera too? Yes I definitely think so and now I'm I sort of look at it and I think it was sort of mad that no one had suggested it to me really that it was just such an obvious thing in terms of you have to be able to I, I mean I'm nervous probably three times a week which is it's quite tiring being, being nervous because I mean I don't know maybe I'll get to a point where I'm not nervous before being on air but I always am I mean not as much as perhaps maybe used to be but it's always there and it helps you perform and it helps you do well I think so nerves are a good thing if you can manage them but I do think it's kind of amazing that no one had suggested it for me it seems really obvious because it's not just about the performance it's also I've always loved people and I read English at university. I love stories and storytelling. So it sort of feels like a kind of obvious thing that would have kind of combined all the skills. So, uh, yeah, as I say, I feel like I fell into it, but now I'm doing it. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And it also just seems to be the perfect job for me in, in so many ways. Mm. And then looking back, given where you are now, how do you reflect on that failed application? Are you glad it happened or would you still want to be an actress sometime down the line? Do you know what? I think the pandemic actually put paid to any 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 uh acting i shouldn't laugh but that's true (laughs) most actors it's so sad i had quite a few friends of mine who who did go into it and and it's hard watching them the struggle that that they have normally for acting and then you add the pandemic to it and so i think that definitely put paid to perhaps any sort of lasting embers i suppose the funny the only thing i think not that i regret but i feel sad about is and i know it sounds strange i definitely feel sort of performing and acting it's definitely sort of a part of me and I'm sad that my fiance has never seen that part of me. You know, when I was at university, I was doing lots of plays, boyfriends I was dating, they'd come and see me and things. And it was just nice to be able for someone to see that's a little bit of who you are. And just for where things kind of fell in life, I met him a lot later. And he's sort of never seen me act. And he's been immensely supportive of my journalism career. But it's, it is different. And it's funny, it's just, there's a little sadness that he'll never see that sort of bit of me. And that's kind of a bit of me that's in the past. And this is now you know, my future. But I think that's the only thing that I sometimes think about sometimes. Going back to your local radio stint, what did you learn about yourself during that period? <laughs> oh my goodness. You know, funny enough, one of the things that sticks in my mind so much was I kind of I started helping them out with all sorts of bits and bobs and I remembered they needed someone to dress up as Pudsy. <laughs> and, and, and I, At least it wasn't Mr Blobby. Exactly. And I remember so clearly, like, I didn't tell my parents because there was like... <laughs> their daughter's graduated from Oxford and here she is back at home with no job and then what to make it work I don't think they would have found it quite funny but um I was quite vague about what I was doing that week and so they were sort of like so what are you doing and I was just like oh you know bit of this bit of that <laughs> I didn't want to say to them that you're their 22 year old daughter is dressing up as a bear for a week but um the things that stick in my mind I think it was an amazing experience for me meeting people out on the streets out and about of different backgrounds that I don't think I would have had the opportunity normally and I do think we all lead very closeted lives at university and you go on particularly then when I moved down to London we all move in our social circles and bubbles and things like that and I think when I was out voxing which I know is sort of journalism jargon when you sort of go up to people in the street with a microphone or camera and ask them various questions you know went to some areas of and there was immensely high deprivation and talking to people with a huge variety of views that challenged my opinions on things and I I think that was really good for me and I think it was just the right thing that I should be as a you know 22 year old you've got all these great ideas of life and then suddenly you start meeting a whole range of people you wouldn't meet normally and um, and it challenges you so I'm very grateful for that experience I don't think I was necessarily 
at the time, but looking back on it, I think the opportunity to meet lots of different people wasn't very glamorous, as I say, dressing up as a bear or going up to people in the street. And But it was a very, it was very much a sort of ground up sort of job. And I know some people and everyone's got their own journalism experience based on all sorts of things and if anyone can get a foot into the door that's amazing but yes mine was very much work experience work your way up and and I'm proud of that because I think it's you know I was a researcher you know I was just and then I sort of and then just sort of slowly was sort of building up and for me it's meant I've had appreciation for lots of different parts of the job and I feel very very strongly about the importance of journalism in the regions I think it's an absolute bedrock of maybe society <laughs> that's a bit too grand mm. maybe no I don't think it is I think it's I think it's really important I think you know, regional news is really important people underestimate that all the time people care very much about their local area I think the BBC but also lots of newspapers and regional journalists organizations do some amazing job in, in connecting with people locally and I think that's what people are often missing in life is connecting and community and so yeah I think local journalism has an a very important role to play like that. When you did move to London, you were quite fortunate and you were able to stay with a few family friends in your early days of journalism. We're going to talk about class in a bit, but obviously there is a degree or element of privilege here that you were able to have these friends to rely on. So how grateful are you to them? Oh, hugely, hugely. And that was something I felt very acutely at the time was that I was doing a lot of unpaid work experience or shadow shifts where they were unpaid and things like that. And I remember fully, if I, I remember a memory that sort of sticks in my mind was coming when I first moved to London and I, I lost, like half a molar came out. Oh my God. I have, um, I have bruxism, which is when I am stressed and I like clench my jaw in my sleep and the result of it, at the time it wasn't diagnosed and I had half a molar come out on whilst biting into a snicker whilst I was outside the BBC, which was pretty upsetting, <laughs> but not so upsetting as when I went to the dentist. And at the time I was not being paid, but I was also... You know, I was staying for free at some family friends, not being paid. And then I went to the dentist and they said it would be £500. And that's on the NHS. And I still remember sort of on the street and I just I just remember crying, you know. And I was actually very fortunate that I, at the time I was on Job Seekers Allowance. And luckily it was able to be you know, paid for. And it was the only time, in, you know, I was luckily not to be on Job Seekers for that long. But it was an amazing sort of thing in terms of even with the privilege and the security I've had in, in so many ways. It's really funny that it was almost like a little hint of... And, and I was really lucky it all got sorted and I was lucky that it kind of fell in that sort of period, I guess. But it was an interesting point that I thought, gosh, crikey, what if if it'd been a month later and I'd been on not much money or I'd been renting in London or I didn't have those sort of, there's lots of sort of caveats. I mean, £500, it was an extraordinary amount to me then, it still is now, but that's before you'd even consider if I was somebody from a deprived background. So yeah, that's probably kind of a slightly roundabout story, but that was something that really, at the time was very upsetting, but I can only imagine how upsetting that could have been if my circumstances had been incredibly different. You then got a job at the BBC World Service where you were presenting on the channel as well. So tell me how that came about and one particularly very traumatic story in New Zealand, which you reported on, which feels actually quite, it feels a century ago, to be honest. Yeah, it, it really does. Well, yeah, so that was, again, I was just like sort of working up sort of situation. I started as a producer and I was quite keen to try and do more reporting. And then I sort of saw that there were some sort of younger people who were presenting. And I, I kind of never thought I'd put myself forward for something like that. And, and then I had a couple of people and I still remember who they were who sort of said, you should put yourself forward. And they've stayed with me because actually you never know. You can think it's a casual throwaway comment saying to somebody, well, you should put yourself forward. But actually sometimes it's just pushing at an open door and you never know 
the power of those comments and a couple of people it gave me courage to think oh maybe maybe I could do and I had a word with the, the head of the program and luckily I was sort of I was given a, a chance and obviously I was incredibly nervous and I kept taking myself off to studios to sort of practice and then the first night I was presenting the Christchurch attack happened which was awful in its own way but then also weirdly enough I'd actually I'd lived in New Zealand as a child so it was actually of all the things to kind of have broken on a world sort of scale at least it was a it was a country I knew something about I knew the prime minister I was able to sort of slightly I had a few things up my sleeve that were helpful and it was it was in the midst of all the kind of Brexit craziness and I remember at the time thinking, oh my goodness me, thank God it's not a Brexit thing, because that really wouldn't have been my forte. I'm not I'm, I'm not a particularly amazing sort of political journalist. So I was quite fortunate, I suppose, in terms of what it was. But it was also just absolutely so heartbreaking and hearing those stories, you know, live. I can so clearly remember some of the reporters are on the scene and some of the testimonies and it was quite an extraordinary experience trying to kind of navigate my way through that but I have to say and it's maybe this sounds like a quite mercenary it was an amazing experience to have been presenting in such circumstances and I really definitely sort of I've got a buzz for it as a result for sure. You then moved over to the Victoria Derbyshire show as an investigative reporter where you worked up until January 2019. Now, before before we talk about the BBC politics, which caused it to be axed, can you tell me about some of the stories you worked on, which meant the most to you? Because Vicky D was exposing a lot of issues that weren't really covered elsewhere at the time, wasn't she? Yeah, that's right. She's, I mean, the programme had, without question, some of the most talented journalists I've ever worked with before. They did some absolutely brilliant work and I mean it sounds incredibly cheesy today it was a real privilege to work with them but it really actually was a privilege to work with them and I think when you're just exposed to people who are just so talented and putting out some amazing stories it is a privilege to work alongside them sadly for me the whole thing feels too short-lived it was sort of six months which Mm. was quite sad but yeah I think the investigation I did that stood out for me was I did a story looking at estranged students at university so students at university who have no contact with their parents They've either been disowned or they've chosen to cut contact with their families. And it was quite heartbreaking. And I feel quite strongly, I guess, about some of the issues that sort of came up from that. And I spoke, I interviewed a number of students who didn't have contact with their family. And sometimes the reasons were just, there were often people who'd slightly fallen through the care system. So there was a lot of issues often with parents who had mental health issues or where there was mistreatment or in one case sort of homophobia for example but there were things that weren't necessarily classified as I I guess bad enough for the care system to intervene and so what often happened is the child would remove themselves from the family dynamic and perhaps stay with other family members or with friends and then often when they went to university just be on their own and some of the testimonies were just absolutely heartbreaking there was one girl I interviewed who had clearly just grown up and her dad had never been around. Her mother was obviously very unwell. She, I think, when it was decided her mother was too unwell to look after her, she was sort of 16 and then she was like, there you go. And she just was living independently. And I remember her very clearly showing to me when she was coming out of university halls, she had a trolley and she would literally move her belongings out of her university halls and she'd couch surf her entire summer holiday and it just absolutely extraordinary and so shocking she's was such a lovely girl and I think it was an interesting one in showing the complexities of family life I guess and as I say a lot of people who perhaps fall through the care system and if they're not care experienced they actually 
are entitled to a lot less benefits. You do get some degree, not much, but you do get some degree of, of benefits in terms of like local councils if you're care experienced. But actually, they sort of fell through the cracks a little bit in that they w- will never be sort of classified as care experienced. But in all intents and purposes, had no family support network or very little. And so this sort of it was kind of like the worst of both worlds, you know. January 2019 was when the news broke that the show was being cut. So how did that affect your career, your mental health? And how did your career change from that point onwards? Because in its essence, you are essentially jobless at the biggest global health crisis since World War II. Yes, that was it. It was a pretty rubbish start to the year. And it was so sad because I really felt that things were starting to come together. I'd had an investigation out, I'd done a bit of presenting over Christmas on the World Service. And it was that sort of moment of thinking like, oh gosh, things are, things are coming together for old, for old Alice. <laughs> and then, gosh, you just never know what's around the corner. And then, then it was very public what happened, which was also quite hard, usual sort of politics that fall out from it, which were difficult for everybody. I don't think initially I thought, oh, I need to get a new job. I sort of assumed I'd be able to find something perhaps within the BBC. There was sort of talk that show might be able to continue and there was promises and this and that. And then the pandemic hit, which meant the programme was taken off air much quicker than we'd anticipated. And then the BBC was under huge financial pressure. There were then lots of redundancies and effectively there was lots going on that, that meant that I was not on a permanent staff contract which given how long I'd been at the BBC for looking back seems pretty awful that's not unique to me that's sadly a, an issue across lots of media organizations sadly mm. though I had no security and you get a redundancy and I was just sort of very conveniently let go so you don't even have a particularly grand sort of there's no redundancy there's no firing it's just a very pathetic sort of just your contract ends and and that's it it was really hard it was really really hard it was hard for lots of people again I suppose I can only go back to if I give that two things example is for me it was the biggest the whole those two years really was an enormous toll on my well-being and mental health I guess and I can only imagine how horrendous it must have been if you don't have a family and you don't have some savings and that support. I did have financial worries in that it, you're always worried if you haven't got a job and I was renting in London, it's really expensive. I would never be in a situation that I would be on the streets and I have got savings and so things like that. So yes, I was worried, but they are nothing in comparison to what some people who would quite simply sort of worry about where they were going to stay that night so again it's sort of those sorts of things it's always when there's kind of a crisis it felt bad enough for me I could only imagine how difficult it would be for somebody who didn't have that comfort level of privilege. You managed to secure a new role after those challenges at Good Morning Britain so what was your experience like here did you feel like you could breathe a little bit easier after that upheaval or not? No unfortunately not I think it wasn't the right role for me I was desperate to be a reporter this was um it's called output producing and it just when you're sort of watching tv you sort of might see the sort of pictures come up on the screen it really was just sort of putting those together so for me I found it found it very boring I think also the thing that was very difficult about it was it was 40% night shifts which I had done before and I'd done them at the world service but that was really hard and it was also really yeah. hard in a pandemic and you were sort of coming into a building you didn't know anybody everyone had masks on it was at night time. Obviously, you had all businesses were having to kind of adapt to COVID and the sort of so everyone was sort of spaced out. Uh, there was no, none of the normal kind of mingling and chatting, going for drinks and stuff like that. They're all gone. So you came into an organisation, you didn't know anybody. You were all spaced out in this very kind of clinical fashion. That's another thing I'm saying is a, 
a criticism of Good Morning Britain. Mm -hmm. They were doing absolutely the right thing at the time. But obviously, I'm just saying as a a new person coming into that environment, that's that's really hard. There's no drinks to socialise. There's nothing. And everyone's upset. Everyone's uptight. Everyone's trying to navigate COVID rules and television. And they've got their partner who's at home and furloughed. And so there was, people weren't hugely happy. It wasn't a happy time for lots of people. And then it was uh, in the winter and I was coming in and it was pitch black and I was leaving and it was pitch black and I wasn't happy in the job. And so that was a whole other 10 months of continuing to job hunt, continuing not being happy in work. So yes, I think it was sad that I didn't have a sense of, I think initially I must've had it, I think the initial maybe the initial month or six weeks, there was a kind of, few. I've got some security, I've got a new job. And then quite quickly, I realised what the, the reality of the job was, which just wasn't right for me. There's some really lovely people who work there. So it's, it's absolutely nothing against the organisation. It just wasn't the right fit for me. And then I think the timing of it, of when I started, was was really, really unfortunate. And I definitely have a, a new, like I say, I had done nights just before, but I definitely feel there's, I'm sure, a whole body of research done on the impact night shifts have on your mental health as well. I mean, just not seeing daylight is really bad for you, I think. Mm, I mean, I'm looking at the window now and it's it's a gorgeous day and it, it lifts you up. And if you're just not seeing daylight, let alone daylight in winter in England, which is pretty depressing at the best of times. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think feel that was uh, something that had quite a big impact on me. One of the few new media that emerged during the pandemic was GB News, which you are now at, Alice. And it often finds the ire of a lot of left-wing people, sometimes right-wing people, because it has a few more controversial figures, but it also has a lot of left-wing figures. I find the whole thing quite, to be honest, quite boring, in fairness. Can you tell me about the stories that you've worked on here and some of your favourite achievements, maybe? Oh, gosh. I don't know why I'm so surprised by that question. Always let me just give me a th- just Let me just have a think. Um... For me, one of the best aspects of starting with GB News was getting the experience as a live reporter, which I hadn't had much before. I'd done some presenting with radio, but I'd never done, I'd done the odd report, but mostly it hadn't been live. So for me, it was an amazing opportunity. I've kind of been thrown into doing lots and lots of live reporting. And I always knew I just needed that opportunity because that's how you get better because you make mistakes. And, and even now, still, I'm still kind of, sometimes you have days and you think, oh, that wasn't very good. But guess what? There's a new one tomorrow. So I think having that repetition has been immensely helpful. But I think, funny, I thought the one that sort of stuck in my mind that was a really exhilarating experience was when Insulate Britain had protested over a number of roads in Essex. I remember it, yes. (laughs) And it caused, it was quite a funny setup because I sort of was in contact with them and we knew it was going to be somewhere but they wouldn't tell us when and then at sort of three o'clock in the morning I got this text saying where to be. It was all very furtive and then they got there and then it was just a completely wild few hours I have to say and it was a really amazing reporting experience. All I can really remember is shouting on this road with all this beeping and it was really funny because I, I know it sounds silly but like later when I uh, heard some of the beeping it was sort of like I sort of come out in shakes because it was a really weird experience of, of reporting over constant beeping and noise and I know that sounds really strange but it was a I mean afterwards I remember I had this really great camera operator and we sort of finished and both of us were just absolutely shaking from the adrenaline we didn't have hadn't had enough water we need some sugar we went to a, a service station both of us were just just shaking and it was just because we'd been I mean, for me, I'd been sort of effectively sort of shouting over beeping for quite a few hours, actually. But that was quite an incredible experience, a reporting experience. And I think it got picked up really well. It was having that that sort of access. And I think a lot of people had some really good feedback on. So, yeah, that was that was quite an exciting experience. 
Mm, I won't divulge my opinion on that, but I did see a lot of the funny memes of people moving those protesters, literally dragging them around. So that was that was always good for the net. Anyway, on to industry issues that you wanted to discuss, Alice, and class was the first one. Now, we've already spoken about it a little bit before with your ability to be able to rely on your family friends. But why did you want to discuss this in particular in relation to maybe the unpaid internships you were doing and when you were starting out? I think we are quite rightly, I suppose, there's lots of issues. I mean, there's lots of issues journalists feel strongly about and care about. And there's lots of different types of injustices. I think I sometimes just feel classes probably fallen maybe by the wayside a little bit. People are very keen for things to look, look visually diverse, but that doesn't always tell the full full story. And I just, I've, I've seen quite a few instances of that in my career. And as I say, this isn't, I'm not trying to speak for other people or, you know, as I say, I've, I've never had any bones about the fact that I, you know, I've been very lucky with my upbringing, things like that. But it is something that's that's really struck me, I think. For example, I had a, a friend of mine who I used to work with who was in care and she was given very little support when she was working in the media. And I really felt that those are exactly the sort of people who should be given support in terms of accommodation. I mean, I kind of really ultimately I'm pretty opposed to unpaid work experience as a I think I think it's just really you can call it what you want I think it's just very exploitative I think maybe a day here or there just to kind of meet someone and have a bit of a chat and things like that but I think you know when I look back on things where you know I did a whole month unpaid I just think it's 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 really ridiculous isn't it it's really exploitative and and it always just advantages the most advantage because who else can afford to not earn for a month you can't and so things like that and I think also the inconsistency in contracts as well I mean for me I found that relatively challenging I can only imagine how difficult that must have been for people not having that certainty of knowing your contract's going to be extended until next month I found it sort of quite irritating on sort of principle but I was quite lucky bar the end of my time at the BBC it always was extended I would actually go as far to say I think those sorts of contracts can be quite financially abusive I think to not be clear Mm. with people when a contract is coming to an end sort of drip sort of almost like breadcrumbs and you also they're in a situation where of course it's it's good for employees to feel grateful to an employee it's not the right word but there needs to be that kind of mutual respect but when you're in a situation where you don't ever have stability you are in a situation where you can't ever raise concerns because you don't know where yeah. contract's going to be extended and so you never have that security of voicing your frustrations or upset with something and again i think that's not a very healthy environment for people to no, be living there's no accountability is there exactly yeah. Let's talk about the other issue you, you wanted to discuss, which is comparison culture. And this has come up quite a few times, probably more than I thought, actually, with journalists that I've spoken to, Alice. And in August 2021, I believe, you saw a colleague post about getting an amazing new job. And it's fair to say it triggered you quite badly. So why did it have that effect? Yeah, I think at the time I was just job hunting. I mean, I think anyone listening to this who has been job hunting for for a long time and I mean for me it was about two years of job hunting continuously and every weekend it's really exhausting it's really oh, depressing. God, it it's a job within a job isn't it yeah it's yeah. a full-time job and with no rewards and and you have awkward meetings at parties with people say oh how's it going oh, and, you've got nothing <laughs> and you say I'm unemployed as fuck mate <laughs> that's what you that's what I used to have to say it is awful so I was just I suppose just really blooming fed up of job hunting for so long and and we all on social media you see things we all post the good things we all post the good things up to a point I mean I try and mix it up a little bit sometimes but generally speaking let's be honest we all put pretty fabulous things we're doing and never the bad things and I think at the time it was just one of those things where I just wasn't in the place to it's not to say not to be pleased with people because I think I actually do mean it when I sort of say in that case I was I was pleased with that person but also 
you can be pleased with somebody on a kind of objective level but it doesn't mean that you're not feeling that you want something or you want some security they're not mutually exclusive and funny if I sometimes worry about I think oh, I don't know how true this is of lots of people who are ambitious but jealousy sometimes I do struggle with actually and I can mm. hold my hands up and say that I don't know if there's much way around it apart from I think sometimes you have to say that is hard it is hard seeing people succeed when you're not succeeding and I'm pleased that I would never sort of I'd always still say congratulations and I try not to let it affect your behavior but it's it's still when that little little monster pops up in your belly and you it's a bad feeling and you don't like feeling it's a bad emotion isn't it it's you you know you're not proud you're not proud of feeling jealous no one likes it and it brings up some awkward sensations I understandable I understand why I felt like that it was a hard time and I was really fed up I felt overlooked I'd been felt like I've been working really hard to try and get a new reporting job and I suppose we all have that sense of entitlement that you think no what but I really would be good if you just gave me a chance and and it's funny my fiance sort of found me and I was all a bit teary and stuff and he said look I can't change any of this but I do think you should just get off social media and I'm not just before saying this it makes it I'm actually really not a huge poster and I look at things but I'm not um I only got actually got Instagram when I started at GB News actually and even then I sort of treat it like a middle-aged like a like like a middle-aged woman I sort of post nice pictures of like oh the lovely walk or something like that I'm not a big uh, I'm not a big look at me in my bikini type type person so yeah I'm not I'm not hugely sort of active and I don't get into big twitter spats or anything like that but I do look at it and even just looking at things I think can be quite I think now I would be more I hope I would be a little bit more aware of how I'm feeling before going on social media and actually at the time my partner was completely right and I deleted all apps and god it was I mean ignorance is bliss if you can't see mm. things <laughs> what you can't see you don't know and I felt so much better and I think it was a really interesting one for me is that again I haven't felt as low as that for a while but I think if I was getting to a state where perhaps I was in a similar situation I think I'd perhaps now maybe have a little bit of a think and think actually let's just go offline for a little bit let's just delete the apps nothing's going to happen and actually I felt a lot better at the time I think I went off it for about a month and I would certainly do that again I would and I've, I've advocated for that when people are friends of mine who's oh, struggling in, in whatever particular way and often something something is on social media that they're finding upsetting whether it's a, a cultural argument that they're seeing or this or that uh, or uh, I mean funny if I mentioned all this to a friend of mine recently who's single and she was saying how difficult she found Instagram in the pandemic with all these sort of couples posting, oh, loads, of, horrible. posting loads of obnoxious pictures and she was sort of saying you know because no matter how crap sort of crap it was for everybody if you were on your own which she was yep. on her own then you know one more flat on her own isolated you know she said I found smug couples sort of baking stuff and saying oh. all that kind of stuff she was like you, people don't realize how upsetting that is for other people. And I think I think the good thing is, as a result of it, is because I can hold my hands up and say, yeah, I've been jealous of other people on social media. I think I try and be careful of what I put and the way I put it, because I think yes. it could, it's great. And it's great to sometimes pick yourself up. And I think, you know, if you're really proud of something, why can't you say, you know, and ultimately you don't have to follow people. And if people aren't comfortable with following your account, they don't have to, and they can make those choices. People I like, actually, there's people I like that I don't follow because I would find yep. to... Or mute them. Or, or, mute, or just mute <laughs> yeah. them. Um, yeah, just mute them. That's the best way. <laughs> exactly. They don't know. <laughs> They'll never know. Because mm. it's sort of just, it's what they're posting, the way they do, that just doesn't quite chime with the things I 
want to be looking at and I find some of it a bit irritating and hey people maybe do that about me and find some of the stuff I post a bit irritating or boring and, and I think it's okay it's okay to make those decisions about the people and information that you include in your life and the way you want to include it I think those are good decisions for people to make can we quickly talk about a pie that you burn? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no filter on that. Thank you, Freddie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, I, I must have been about a month ago, I posted a picture of a very, very burnt pie. That was just a very ugly black pie that I put in the oven. And I just took a photo. It just made me laugh because it just looked so sad and stupid when I opened the oven. And I just, I took a photo of it and just put it on Instagram and just sort of said, oh, I think, I think delivery is in order. And I think people were quite sort of surprised. I had quite a few colleagues say like what happened and I was like oh I just burnt it I just got chatting to a friend and left it it's not there's no great story but I think it's just you sometimes need to kind of acknowledge your <laughs> fuck-ups and <laughs> can I swear muck-ups yeah yeah you can swear yeah it's fine <laughs> I've already sworn once so I now I've got to put my own explicit mark on it <laughs> gave the green light yeah I think it's funny a friend of mine at the BBC I remember her saying her partner spent years trying to get a new job and uh when he did get a new job he posted on online a, a recording showing all his rejections from just internally at the BBC and it was one of those tweets that actually kind of went viral because it was like thank you thanks for being honest about the fact that we all will put on social media oh, I've got this amazing new job but I mean goodness me I have had, had so many rejections it's I mean so many over the years and I have to say I don't think I've been brave enough to put that online and so I think people who do do that I really applaud it and I really like sometimes you'll see people do that now is they'll sort of say job alert I haven't got one <laughs> yeah I love those ones <laughs> I think great and if people did that more it would make us all feel a lot better yeah I, I'm a little bit skeptical because I've been made redundant three times and and the combined period was probably about a year and a bit and if I'd kept going yeah still unemployed as fuck <laughs> I would have probably cancelled myself in the dating market there so <laughs> that's the thing right you worry it doesn't sound it's only it's not necessarily the sexiest thing <laughs> so it's... no it's the most emasculating thing ever <laughs> let's reflect on your journalism journey then Alice before we move on so what have you learned about yourself has it made you become self-aware of things that you might not have done without it I think journalism's definitely given me an opportunity to meet a whole range of people I don't necessarily think I suppose if I'd gone into a different job you know if you're working with the public you will meet lots of different people but I think you know sitting down and having really in-depth conversations with people about why their parents disowned them or why they chose to leave their extreme religious group or all these sorts of pretty intense kind of conversations to have and it's and that is for me the best bit of my job I think is when you sit down with somebody and you've earned that trust that they were prepared to sit down with you and really talk to you about some very very personal experiences and for me that's that's always an absolute privilege so I think how that sort of changed me is just I think it's opened my eyes to the way different people live different values different experiences and I hope I continue to do that and be and be challenged in that way we've talked about Alice the journalist let's dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey Alice so I ask all my special guests this question first walk me through early life in Worcestershire, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Alice we meet here? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Worcestershire, which, uh, I'm trying to think of how to get into this. I don't know. I don't know what, I'm happy to talk about mental health, so I'm just trying to think about like what to say as my, like, just tell me what kind of person you were like. What was I like? Okay. What was I like as a child? Probably, probably quite, very chatty. I think, <laughs> I think pretty friendly, I hope. 
I hear I was a pretty shocking toddler, but my theory is the worse toddler you are, the better teenager you are. So I, I was sort of, I think, a, a relatively... <laughs> There'll be parents listening to this who might want to test that theory. I mean, I really think I was pretty extraordinarily awful as a, a small child. But as a, a sort of teenager, I think it was generally not the worst teenager in the world, I think. In terms of sort of mental health, I was have been very fortunate in that I, I, haven't, I haven't had a, a mental health illness at any point, I guess. But I think I also feel strongly about the issue that we all have mental well-being that we need to be checking and, and things like that I think what I did struggle with was which is I think an interesting issue is I had a number of people who were close to me who had mental health problems and that is an interesting one in terms of that's obviously hard for that individual but it has repercussions and I had my best friend was diagnosed with bipolar when we were teenagers and I've had family members with mental health problems as well and I think it was very hard to support you're quite naive and I think actually in some ways I think I was quite naive in supporting people with mental health problems for a long time you know you sort of mm. just I think I just had such an overwhelming sense you want them to be happy and you do sort of anything to make them happy and it's one of the hardest things as I got older was realizing that actually you as an individual can't actually do that necessarily you can support them and do all you can to try and make their life as best as possible but you as an individual cannot make another person happy in that particular regard and that's quite a a hard truth to learn and also sometimes you also have to take a step back and realize there's only so much you can do and you can uh, and I think definitely that I think there were instances when I was a a teenager with goodwill I was trying my absolutely level best on on situations with people but actually there has to become a point where if they don't want help and support you know I'm not a qualified psychologist or anything like that I can there's only so much I can do and if they're not willing to get help on the particular issues there's, there's only so much you can do really and again mm. that comes with age and it's very hard mm. when you're a teenager trying to do navigate I, could, I mean and I can only imagine how difficult that is navigating it when you're the one going through those mental health problems so I'm certainly not trying to turn it around and say it's sort of harder for those around but I, I think it is difficult and I think it's important that we all acknowledge that it is difficult for family members and friends who are supporting loved ones through mental health problems. You need the language and I'm always very keen to educate people on the language between or around mental health and between general mental health and mental illness. So this is something that we've already discussed a little bit, but you were really passionate about discussing. So why is that, Alice? I think it is really important. And it's, a, it's on the one hand, I think it's really good we're talking more and more about mental health. And for example, the last couple of years, I certainly, I remember one time very distinctly, I was meant to be going to a party. And at the time I was just really struggling with the job insecurities and the job hunting and how that affected my self-esteem. And I remember just sort of saying like, I just don't feel up to it. I don't feel, I didn't have an excuse. I just didn't feel like I could just face going into a room with lots of people saying, oh, what do you do, etc. And funnily enough, that friend also vice versa has called me up and said, I'm having a bad mental health day. You know, can we have a chat? And so I think it's really great that we talk much more freely about that and we all need to be checking in on each other's well-being and I think that's one positive thing of the pandemic absolutely I feel really strongly about is that I've noticed really distinctly with friends people who I know have never necessarily had mental health struggles before are now talking in much more open terms about their mental well-being in that way so I think that's a really good thing but I'm also have I suppose I want to make a personal distinction for myself and I guess some people may feel differently that I don't have a mental illness and mm -hmm. why do I think that's an important distinction to make I guess that my experience is different you know when I'm upset or I'm down about something what's happening to me in my body and my brain is a very different experience that doesn't mean like I'm not struggling and, and it is valid and it is valid of course it is 
but it is very different and and I think it's important that I recognize that that when I know a friend of mine who's who struggles with depression and anxiety and it is her experience is, is very different when she's struggling through something it is the way in which her body is reacting is very difficult the way she feels she can cope with things I'm not a psychologist but it, the process is very different she has an illness I am not ill I'm somebody who doesn't have an illness who is being tested and is struggling and needs some support and they are two different things and I think it's important to make that distinction and it doesn't as I say it doesn't make my experience when I'm finding things hard or anyone else's it doesn't make it not valid but it is important to be aware that they are different experiences that people are going through I guess. Mm, You're completely right and I think feeling sad or going through a period of great sadness whether that's because of grief or whether that's because you've lost a job or whether that's for any reason is one thing but like you said clinical depression and a diagnosed mental health condition is another thing do you think in this age of social media where we've made great strides but also mental health content is very online and very prominent in a lot of people's lives that the lines are becoming a little bit blurred in the wider conversation yeah I think that's an interesting one I think probably teachers might answer that really interestingly I think you definitely hear medicalized sort of words have become quite normal like people will Mm. say oh I was really depressed now I'd be quite reluctant to use that word because I'd sort of where does that leave people who have got depression where does Mm. and if that word's being used kind of oh my god I felt so depressed today and to be honest we all do it to an extent and we use the word trauma quite liberally and again I sort of I don't necessarily think I'm skeptical about that (laughs) exactly and where does that leave people who have gone through trauma and maybe some of that is you know, language is always changing and, and maybe people are, we're all just trying to find words that kind of fit with trying to express things that haven't been expressed before. And we kind of forget that really a lot with mental health. You know, people weren't, we wouldn't be having this conversation probably 20 years ago. And so we're all kind of grappling, trying to find words to express how we feel, I guess. But I think we have to be careful about the language that we're using to describe experiences. And that, if we say not over-normalised, because I do, I think all those words and the way we talk about it, it is normal. Nothing is abnormal about it. But I think we just be careful about the appropriateness of using Yeah. I worry about what effect it's having on the kids as well. Because there's a lot of self-diagnosing amongst the kids. And now they've got loads and loads of mental health content. They might see something and go, oh, I have that. When actually they might just be feeling a bit sad. And they might have a symptom of anxiety. But not, they might not have actual generalised anxiety disorder. Do you know what I mean? So... It's one that I worry about quite a lot, actually, with the kids coming up now, especially like social media has just, I mean, I say to a lot of my mates, jokingly, that dating apps have fucked up my generation. Social media has definitely fucked up these Gen Z kids and the kids coming up. Yeah, I, I feel really strong about that when I see, because we sort of, we all, we all sort of know ourselves, we sort of, you know, I was waiting for their hairdressers the other day and I sat down and what did I do? Got on my phone, because I obviously couldn't just sit there for a minute and just be at peace with myself. And I'm aware of times where I think, well, I need to put my phone down and I do try and regulate it as much as possible. But we all get into habits and I just look around and I sound like an old woman, but I've been saying this for years. I find looking around and seeing everyone on their phones, like couples in particular, I, I always take probably a little bit, maybe it's like a bit of a Maybe it's smug. Maybe it's a bit smug. But when I'm out with my partner and I see couples and they're just all on their phones, and I, I always go, look at them. Look at them. <laughs> they're not talking to each other. And I just couldn't imagine. I'm not saying he might say something, might say, oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, like, look at them. I'm not saying I've never got, had my phone out on the table when we've been out together. That's not true. But it's when you see couples or families whole families and they're all looking at their phones. It breaks my heart. It absolutely breaks my heart because 
if we want to raise children to be able to have conversations and I just when you see parents just not talking to their children they're just all on their phones that must make a child feel I guess maybe they don't but it make, must make them feel so unimportant around that table even subconsciously yeah, yeah. you are you're saying ultimately that that is that is more important than the person you're with really implicitly that's what that is what you do mm. and if you spend an entire meal on your phone and not with I think particularly as an adult I think children would just do whatever they can to kind of entertain themselves but that is effectively what you're doing and I, I don't think that's right going back to that period of job instability you had do you feel a more resilient person having come out of it yes yes I do I do feel more resilient I think it's also given me more perspective on things and there's also that whole thing of people always think the grass is always greener like for example you know people always have frustrations with the hours they're doing and this and that and you know I've said to colleagues well you know we could be doing half our shifts could be night shifts you know what I mean and I think once you've done that and you're having to go the odd weekend here or there for me I'm like that's fine by me because you realize things could be a lot worse and I think I've now got my first ever permanent job I'm 30 it's my first ever permanent job and I don't take that lightly you know so when there are other things that you're frustrated by at work which we we all have I think it gives me a sort of I think well I really appreciate that I appreciate that stability and I've, I've never had that before so I think it's given me a greater sense of sort of weighing up the pros and cons of working anywhere that's an important thing but also I do I do think you know I, I'm someone who was I was really fortunate at school I found school very easy found uni easy in terms of exams and all that sort of thing and it was definitely you know yeah I guess well adult life you know things don't go your way and, and that's really hard but I, I like to hope it's made me a better person in that I think I think I would handle interesting now I've had friends who are finding jobs insecurity difficult and I, I definitely think I can support them better as a result and understand the how difficult it is when you are spending years putting job applications the impact that has on your self-esteem I think almost only one someone who's kind of gone through that can understand it you know anyone else is kind of like oh yeah it's hard and you do know it's hard but I, I, I can only I only think someone who's had every weekend the constantly put the, the, the performance of having to do an interview selling yourself and then waiting and then you're not hearing anything feeling overlooked all those things I think only someone who's kind of gone through that for a sustained period of time can really understand that impact that that has on the person before a pandemic before being in an isolation before not being with your friends to support you I think that was one of the things that I think made it, it so much harder is you know in a normal situation you'd get a job rejection you'd go off oh, let's go out and get pissed or whatever you go out with your friends and have a night out but I couldn't you just go back to your room and watch Netflix or go for a cold walk and so there was nothing to sort of distract you at all and actually do you know what going out with your friends going out meeting with family doing all these things you know what they are so important and I'll never apologize I guess for the importance of it I found the pandemic very very hard in that way and I know Again, there's a sort of what I find interesting with the pandemic and lockdown is there's lots of sort of checking your privilege type thing. There's lots of sort of, but people had it so much worse. My brother always does this. He says, uh, we'll talk about something that was hard. And he's like, but people had it so much worse. And it's right. And he's right. It's kind of gaslighting in a way. A little <laughs> bit. I see where he's coming from, but it's a little bit it's gaslighting. It's true. It's funny, isn't it? Because he's right that you do need that perspective. And oh my goodness, what some families had to contend with was awful. And yeah, I couldn't imagine it. But at the same time, it was an such an extraordinary time where in, in to be without seeing your friends family be able to not do things I mean those are things that give me great joy in my life is going out with my friends and doing nice things I'll never apologize for that I need that in my life and I struggled without it it's not a surprise and I think that's okay for us all to acknowledge that
I'm reading a book at the moment called Anti-Fragile by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. It's an absolute tome. It's 426 pages with like 10 font. I'm having to like read 20 pages in an hour. And the basic concept is that he says that anti-fragile is how what we should be aspiring to because when you are anti-fragile, when traumas or shocks affect you, you change and improve. Whereas when you're resilient, you stay the same. So do you feel like you're anti-fragile now or do you feel like you're resilient? I think I'm maybe team anti-fragile, I think. You know? <laughs> I think, yes, I do feel I do feel changed in a good way. And I think it's always good to be changing throughout life, really. I hope I'm always changing. Let's reflect now then on your journey. So if you could go back and talk to the Alice who was struggling to adjust to the adult world post-university, maybe seeing a bit of her friends getting all these fancy new jobs, or the Alice who had just lost her job at Victoria Derbyshire, what would you say to her, knowing what you do now? Oh, gosh, that is... What a question. That's interesting. Um, I think I've been very lucky with my really... I've got some really good friends. I've got a fabulous partner and lots of good family around me and things like that. And I think it's just holding on to that because a lot of people don't have that. And sometimes I really hated it when people would say to me, oh, but you've got this or you've got that. But it is also a lot of people don't have that. Those people around you who love you and support you, are the key. They are the key. I don't know how I would have got through the last couple of years without the support of my friends and my partner. They really have been absolutely amazing and have helped me a lot. So I think holding those people close and and remembering that you've got them is really important. So I think that would be one thing. And I think the other thing would be not to just be so hard on oneself. Funnily enough, I think I maybe have just got to the stage now. I used to always be looking ahead and wanting the newer job, the newer, the shinier job, the this, the that. And it's actually a really nice feeling of slightly getting a bit older and just, you know, sometimes just celebrating those moments of like, oh yeah, that was a good report. Yeah, well done, Alice, that's okay. And, and not always thinking that something is bigger or better and, and just stopping and, and being, accepting what you've got that is good. There's been lots of things in my life that have been good. And so I think if I was to go back to more difficult times, it's just trying to you know, things like health, I feel very strongly we all take health for granted, not just mental health, but also just physical health. And sometimes you get these weird reminders of your health in the news or something, you see these horrendous things and you think, oh my goodness, I'm so lucky. So yeah, I think I think maybe those are the two things is keeping your friends, friends and family and close to you, but also just trying not to be so hard on yourself. And, you know, we will hopefully have long lives and it would be pretty boring if everything came together at the age of 21. I think you'd be a very dull individual. And I think it's quite right that we have these twists and turns on life, even though they're pretty rubbish when you're going through them. And I think that's that's okay. Like, it's all very well me being all very philosophical about it now and sort of saying, oh, it makes you this or it makes you that. It's rubbish when you're going through it. And it's only a lot later that you think, oh, okay, I feel a bit stronger out of it. At the time, it's really hard. And that's okay to admit. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Alex, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time, which is a general natter and chat about mental health. So firstly, how do you say your mental health is at the moment? I think it's good. Yeah, I'm feeling good at the moment. Yeah, thank you. Brilliant. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? It's difficult to know, separate what would be mental health and what was just sort of, I definitely remember very acutely as a sort of 
10 and 11 year old feet having emotions come across you so strongly and usually really negative ones like feeling incredibly angry or upset or frustrated and just physically just not knowing what to do with that emotion and I don't know how much that was just sort of hormonal or things like that but I think it was yeah having these sort of very large overwhelming feelings coming over you with no idea of what to do or how to navigate that and feeling really low on things you're just not in control of yourself in the way that you would do I think when you're an adult and yeah I'd say I'd certainly say sort of maybe about 11 or 12 for sure. Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health so who was it with what impact did it have and did it feel like a big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders or did it feel like something quite easy insignificant and normal to do? Yeah, that's interesting. I actually did see, not a counsellor, but I did at school, we had a sort of like the students that were in the sort of top year were able to be kind of like a listener or something. And I remember there were a few things at home that were kind of going on that I was sort of struggling with. And I remember sort of sitting down and, and, and talking with them. And yeah, definitely a sense of feeling better, feeling listened to. I think it was really interesting having an objective third party, someone who wasn't a friend or a family member. And actually, while I haven't I've actually really had a sort of a chat like that ever since then. I would be a huge advocate and I have advocated hugely for people for counselling and things. I think it's really important having that third party, a professional person sitting down and working with you. So I I feel very passionate about that, even though I don't think uh, I felt like I've needed that myself. Although, who knows? And I'd be very, very open to the idea of talking with someone in the future. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, it could be a sound, a sensation, a particular film, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I think definitely people's comments on things can can be triggering, I think. I think they all can. I mean, sometimes you can brush things off, but sometimes... And usually it's your nearest and dearest, right? I think sometimes you sort of no yeah they cut the most they cut they really they really they cut like, I'm I'm one of my many faults is I'm really bad at picking at emotional scabs and I'm not a great person of moving I, I store and remember and scratch <laughs> at it in my sleep so to speak so yeah I, I definitely think comments that people say I can definitely I'm not very good at letting them go when I I sort of they store and fester <laughs> And then conversely, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I'd love to be one of those people who says, says, oh, I just do lots of running. (laughs) But I'm not. (laughs) I'm always always with people. I've got some friends of mine who really use exercise and I I think good for you. (laughs) I don't do that. I definitely find I need to be around people. I think there's a time to sit and be a bit mopey and have a glass of wine and watch a movie when you're feeling low and actually that is sometimes I find that you, you just need that because you're often you're just tired and you just need a bit that sort of time but also I think I also I like being with people and people make me happy and I think it's a great distraction keeping busy with friends if you could just kind of go for a walk gets you out of yourself so I think when I've had days where I've started to get a bit low or something I, I'm usually pretty keen to try and meet up with someone and, and keep busy. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. Oh my gosh, a book. God, that sounds terrible to say when I read English at uni. Um, God, Christ alive. Um, Funny book, funny book. Sure, can I just, I'm going to take you through into my sitting room. That's okay. <laughs> I'm going to look I'm, at my I'm, I'm wondering whether I keep this in or not. <laughs> I think there must be, I'm sure there is one that I've reread. Let me have a look. 
If this is left in, we're now being taken to Alice's <laughs> living room where she is showing us the books on her bookcase. <laughs> Gosh, that's terrible to think I can't I can't think of one off the top of my head. Um I'm sure it'll come to me later. I do you know what I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I cannot think of one in that particular regard. Okay, what about what about a film or podcast or anything that you found inspirational or helped your mental health? Any form of content. Oh god. I don't know why I'm so surprised by this question. Um films. I love films. Um Oh, two what two what? A TV series. Oh gosh, what's it called? It's not Euphoria, is it? No, it's uh, what did I Ah, oh, okay, there we go. I know. The TV series that I have found so uplifting for my mental health and I just love the way it looks at the world is This Is Us. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Every time that, you know, that TV show just really touches my soul in some way and I think it touches on so many really, really important family dynamics and definitely looks at all the difficult intricacies of being a human and how ridiculous we are in lots of so many ways and every time I watch it, it definitely gives me a sense of feeling I feel more peaceful afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. And as a final question then, Alice, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? I think you've got to give people access to mental health resources. We have a very, very long waiting list for people who want to get counselling, for example, and people need it. They know they need help. I think that's just such an extraordinary barrier for people. So I think that's really important. I feel very strongly, particularly on the issue of men's mental health. I think, sadly, the suicide rates in this country speak for themselves. And uh, I think we really, really have to engage more with the men in our lives. And I've been very keen to do that with my brothers and my fiancé. And I think I do think, actually, that's an amazing role women can play in that and I think normalising those those conversations and I've definitely checked in with my brothers and my partner at different points during the pandemic when I noticed you know people were struggling in different ways and I think in my family and I'm sure that's true of lots of families we don't talk about mental health very much in terms of ourselves that's and I don't think you know I've, I've had a great family there's lots of great things about them but I've, I've been honest that I think we, we don't talk about it enough which I think is a shame because if you don't talk about it enough then where does that leave people if they are struggling because it's quite hard to then put yourself then in, into a narrative that's not been established so I think if we can all do a little bit more particularly I'd say with men but I think that's it's true of everybody but particularly with men allow in the space to have those conversations and support that and that it's still very masculine it's not do you know what I mean this isn't I think it's something that we sort of again it's, it's seen as very it's not very masculine to talk about these things and I don't think any of those are very helpful terms it's not about whether things are masculine or feminine or not it's just about people and us all speaking up more and, and supporting each other so yeah I, I definitely feel quite strongly that's something we can all do for each other. Alice Porter thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking podcast. Thank you. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of Just Checking Podcast. Big thank you to Alice for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with her. I'll put a link to where you can follow Alice and find out all the amazing stories she's working on in the show notes. I'll sign us off by saying, as usual, if you want to give it a share on social media, please do. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Tell your family. If you're feeling generous, write us a review on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. We haven't had one in absolutely ages, so please do and help us out with those algorithms. If you want to support us further and you like what we're doing here at Vent, please go to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent.